Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, my name is John Bleasdell. I'm a writer and film critic, and today on Writers on Film, the writer in question is Joseph McBride. He is a biographer of many, many books, including probably most famously John Ford, Capra, Billy Wilder, just just a whole bunch of people. Recently, The Coen Brothers. That, that book is, is just out in the last couple of weeks and uh, we talk about everything this is probably one of the most wide-ranging conversations that we've had on this podcast we go from jfk acting in an awesome wells movie every every i don't want to spoil it i'm not going to tell you anymore because i don't want to spoil it just enjoy it enjoy the conversation kid and I sold my first magazine article in 1960 when I was 12. My parents were newspaper reporters in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, both for um, the Milwaukee Journal at different times and my mother also for the Milwaukee Sentinel. And so uh, my mother suggested I do a magazine article in 1960 for a national Catholic high school or uh, school school magazine. I, I was um, on a baseball team with Warren Spahn's son. Warren Spahn was the greatest left-handed baseball pitcher ever and his son Greg was on my little league baseball team and she said why don't you write an article about the father and son so I did one and uh, sold it for $40 in May of 1960 and I I was also working uh, as a volunteer for president or for senator John F. Kennedy in his Wisconsin primary campaign that spring and uh, the same week I got a letter from him thanking me for helping in his campaign and I got $40 in the mail for this article which uh, really meant a lot to me that you know I actually got paid and I spent seven years after that trying to uh, sell baseball articles 
I was a big baseball fanatic <clears throat> and um, I didn't sell one. I didn't start selling articles again until I uh, discovered writing about film in the late 60s. But in the meantime, in 1963, in May, I started writing a book about baseball because I was um, not only a baseball fanatic, I was going to ball games, Milwaukee Braves games all the time. And I was working there as a vendor to help put myself through high school and played a little tabletop baseball game. And, you know, I was, I was reading books on baseball and, and I wanted to read a book on baseball slang. I was very interested in words. Etymology was kind of one of my hobbies in high school. And I read books on etymology and I found that fascinating how words are created. And so I, I went to the library and I, I tried to find a book on baseball slang and I couldn't find one. So I thought, oh, I'll have to write one of my own. And that's that's kind of the motive I think a lot of writers have for writing books. The, the, gap, on, the gap on the bookshelf, the sort of like, where's the book about that? Uh, and well, that's, that's been the motive for a lot of my books, actually, uh, because I look around and I think, well, how come there's not a biography of Frank Capra, you know, or how come there's not a first rate biography of John Ford? There really uh, needs to be. And so the baseball book I spent three years working on, uh, it kept me out of trouble in high school, which was good, you know, because I spent the whole summers working on that while I was selling hot dogs at the ballpark. And I taught myself how to write a book. And I was, uh, you know, going to the library, taking, taking out tons of books. And I wrote letters to baseball teams and baseball players to get information and did a lot of research. And um, it was a good little book. It was called High and Inside, The Complete Guide to Baseball Slang was the original title. And I later changed the title to High and Inside, an A to Z Guide to the Language of Baseball, which is more modest because um, other books have come out since then. Mine was really the first real book on baseball slang. Somebody did a thesis on it and somebody did a little pamphlet before me and I got a hold of those. But <clears throat> since then, there have been some good books, uh, similar books. But my, mine is a fun little book. It took me 17 years to get it published. And, and one of the funny stories about this was uh, when I finished it, uh, I, I kept it a secret from my parents because I thought if I told them I was writing a book, they'd stop. And it's, it sounds very bizarre because, first of all, they're writers, but they were, uh, you know, it was kind of a repressive Catholic education. And, you know, they, my mother was more supportive than my father about my writing. My father was felt he was a little jealous of. You know, we were like rivals, kind of. And I, I thought that, yeah, the parents, the way they are, they might say, oh, it's too much to do, you know, don't do that. And why don't you go out and have some fun or whatever? And, uh, so I kept it a secret. And for three years, I'm in my room with the door closed and they never asked, what are you doing in there? <laughs> Which is weird. It's weird when you think about it. We had seven children. And that's part of the reason, you know, they weren't, they didn't have the time to really focus on our lives. But I could have been building a bomb or something up there. And, and I came down the stairs one day with a book. And uh, actually, another funny little thing, my dad had been a, a baseball uh, journalist for a while as part of his longtime journalistic career. And he knew a lot about baseball. So I'd come down the stairs and ask him questions about how did so-and-so get his nickname or how did this word come to be? And he'd answer the questions. He didn't know he was being used as a, a resource. So I, I came down the stairs with this box and I said, I wrote a book and they were they were pleased and impressed. And my father tried to help me sell it. I didn't know how to sell the book. I had a plan to sell it to a magazine called The Sporting News, which published um, guidebooks and things. And they rejected it. And after that, I didn't really have a plan. So it kind of sat around and he kept bugging me for about 17 years. It finally came out. I sold it to Warner Books when I was a Hollywood screenwriter. And I had to update the book again because it was, you know, it was 17 years out of date. So and it came out. It, it actually was probably the biggest selling book I ever had. It sold, I was told, 40,000 copies. And I never got a penny in royalties. I got screwed. Typical publishing. Never made a penny off it. 
except for the meager advance that I got. But it was great having it published. It um, meant a lot to me. And then 16 years later, I did another edition to bring it up to date again. And I, at some point, if I have time, I'll do yet another edition. But that started me on the path of writing a book. I've been writing books constantly since 1963. And when I got to college, I... Um, discovered films at the University of Wisconsin. I saw Citizen Kane in a film class, September 22nd, 1966. And you can tell it it meant a lot to me because I Mm. remember the date. I got very excited and I was going to be a journalist and a uh, novelist like a lot of people were in those days. And I uh, immediately thought, okay, I'll be a journalist and a writer about film and and a screenwriter and director. I had all those goals. So I started writing a book about Kane because um, you know, I thought this was the most amazing film I'd ever seen. And I went again, I went to the library and couldn't find a good book on Orson Welles. There was very little published in English. Then I just fortuitously, there was a festival of several of his films playing at the student union. I saw those and I thought, oh, uh, gee, he made a lot of other good films too. And I, But I spent two years just writing about Kane. And then I began thinking that you know, I should expand it into a book on his whole career. And I wrote a critical study of him took four years to write and uh, sold it to the British Film Institute. They had a very good series called Cinema One Books, which were little, they were monographs. Mine is about 50,000 words long. And they had a lot of photographs and there were serious studies of various directors because it was the beginning of uh, film studies in a major way. And so they wanted you know books on all the important directors and genres and things and, and uh, I, I did a clever thing which i i, I tell students I, I was writing for film magazines and uh, sight and sound in england and film comment and film quarterly in america etc film heritage and i would publish uh, sections of the book in, in the magazines you know like a section uh, article on citizen kane an article on wells's films before kane chimes at midnight etc and I correctly figured I was making myself known as a kind of Wells expert, and it would help me to sell the book. And then when I when it came time to sell the book, my editor at Sight and Sound was also the editor of the book series, and I wrote her a letter, and I said, I have this manuscript, uh, would you like to consider? And she wrote back, she said, well, you know, I've published... Uh, what three or four of the articles and I know it well and I think it's very good and I'm almost certain we will publish it and then like another couple weeks later she said we'll publish it so it was real easy to sell a book I think it it was easier to sell books on film than than it is now because they were publishing a lot of them and today you go to bookstores today and there's not a film section anymore uh, except in a few bookstores it's all film, TV, music all crammed together. Yeah, yeah, that's the way it is in most of the chain bookstores in America. And there aren't that many bookstores left either. There are film books published, but there are not as many. So it's a challenge. But um, if you're a young film enthusiast, I, I was, you know, if I had it to do over again, I'd start a blog and a podcast and things like that. That's how young people get their name around and then try to publish in the few good film magazines that exist. And then you can build up to writing a book. I think writing a book is, is a lot, you know, it's a great challenge compared to writing short pieces. You really dig into a topic, you go into depth for years on some subject, and I've been doing it my whole life. So when did the screenwriting come in then? When, when did you start with that phase of your career? Well, that was inspired by Kane, so it started at the same time, 66. I started writing short scripts, and in 2012, I published a book called Writing in Pictures. Screenwriting made mostly painless. 
and it's a manual on screenwriting and it's based on how I taught myself how to write scripts because when I was starting there wasn't a, a book I could find again on you know how to write screenplays and there have been books of that sort since, since the silent days but I didn't have I couldn't find one so I just decided to teach myself and I we didn't have a course on screenwriting in uh, the University of Wisconsin so I just the script of Citizen Kane was at the State Historical Society in the collection of Wells's lawyer and which was fortuitous and I, I went to the library and every day for a month I typed an exact copy of the script with my little portable typewriter because I couldn't afford to Xerox it. I was working working as a dishwasher and running a campus film society and you know I was seeing films all day and all night. The university very kindly let me screen films that they were showing for all the different courses and then I would see a film or two every night and come home and work on the book. But I was also writing scripts and I, I had the script of Kane and I had a print of Kane, which I watched over and over and over. And that was my textbook. And I taught myself how to write scripts. And the, the first script I did, uh, I adapted Jack London's great short story to build a fire, which is a mm. suspenseful story about a man freezing to death in the Yukon. And it was not good. I didn't know how to write it. But as, as I went along, I started imitating the format of Kane and I gradually it's a funny story that I wrote a bunch of short scripts. I had the sense to write short scripts, which is how I teach my students. Let's start with a short script because I, I knew that I didn't have enough knowledge to write a, a feature at that point. That's a big deal. I wrote a whole bunch of them and I was, I got a, a Super 8 camera and I was making films. In those days, it was expensive because you had to buy the film and I was mm. poor and I, I'd save up for a few months and buy enough film to make a film. Uh, today, you get a video camera and you can shoot for free um but anyway so i um i made some of these films but i the first I, I thought okay now i'll try a feature and i took hemingway's book a movable feast which is a book i love which had come out in 1964 posthumously it's his memoir of his youth in paris and i found it very romantic a very misleading book though because he talks about how poor they were and how happy they were and actually i i found out later his wife had a sizable trust fund and they had an, <laughs> he had an uncle gus who, who would send them checks every once in a while so they weren't just living off his occasional articles but you know when you read the book you, you see the, they're eating at the fanciest restaurants in paris and hanging out with james joyce and gertrude stein and you know it, it kind of set me on the path of being a professional writer kind of ruined my life <laughs> I'm, I'm being facetious but you know thank you Hemingway but it misled me into thinking that writing was a more lucrative field than it really is but so I wrote an adaptation of this book by Hemingway and it was fairly good I thought I was sort of you know parts were good and parts not so good and then I had the chutzpah to, to uh, send a telegram to Mrs. Hemingway in Idaho. I, and I was very bold in those days. And I, I'd met a recovering screenwriter coming through Wisconsin who gave me one word of advice about the film industry. He said chutzpah. And right. I, I thought that's a great piece of advice because I tell my students, you know, that's what you got to have. You got to be bold. And I was very bold. And so I sent her a telegram and I announced that I had adapted her husband's book into a film and I'd like to talk to her. And she immediately fired back a telegram saying, call me at this number in Ketchum, Idaho. And so I called her and she just reamed me out, just really tore me a new one because she said, how dare you adapt this book that you don't own? Uh, it's my husband's book. You lay off or we'll sue your ass, basically. You know, she was a really tough, tough lady, Mary Hemingway. And I realized a good lesson, don't adapt a book you don't own. 
<laughs> I later made that mistake again. Too uh, much chutzpah. <laughs> too yeah, much too much chutzpah. Yeah. So the book is sitting in a drawer, and you know nobody's ever made a movie of that. And Woody Allen kind of did with Moonlight in Paris, which is sort of a parody of uh, Movable Feast. He wrote a parody of it in The New Yorker that's very funny, and and uh, Moonlight in Paris is kind of a takeoff to some extent on that, but it's never been actually filmed. It should be. But um, then I started. Um, I wrote a, a, another adaptation of, of two books. And then I started writing original scripts and I wrote five scripts before I wrote one that I thought was any good. And I took it to Hollywood with me and uh, I wrote it for the comedian Red Fox, who was, I thought, a very funny comedian in his sort of X-rated party records that they had. His nightclub performances were very bawdy and risque. And I thought the guy had potential to be a movie star. So I wrote this very good script, I thought, about uh, about an old man who's sort of a model... Uh, a citizen who cuts loose, you know, when he retires. Uh, I, I took it to Hollywood and I tried to get it to Red Fox and I couldn't get it to him. I finally met him at a party surrounded by a bunch of guys, you know, kind of intimidating looking guys. And he said he would read it and I sent it to him. And I'm still waiting for a response. Uh, <laughs> he didn't get back. <laughs> yeah, so I learned a lesson. Don't write a script that only one guy can do. And later I thought, you know, I should have retooled it for somebody like Sidney Poitier, who would have been good for it. And uh, he was also a good director. But I kept telling my agent, um, <clears throat> why don't we send this to Poitier? And she, she wouldn't do it for some reason. He was out of fashion, I guess. And it's mm -hmm. too bad because he was a, a great, great guy. Um, but anyway, by then I was launched on film career. It took me 10 years to sell a script before, uh, you know, I've been writing for, until... 60, from 66 to 76, I sold three screenplays to Roger Corman in short order, and then I was moving along. I sold a bunch of uh, features and did about nine television shows and documentaries, and then I retired from screenwriting in 1984 because I found it a horrible, demeaning profession. Uh, even though I had some success, I won the Writers Guild Award and I had a couple of Emmy nominations, etc. But I, I decided to write books full-time, real major books. I was still writing mm. books along the way, but I decided to write my biography of Frank Capper, which is a, a very big endeavor. And, and you decided to do that, you said earlier, because there wasn't, there just wasn't a, a, a book about him. I think it feels like Capra has sort of come back into vogue a little bit and his, his star is a bit, bit brighter now than it was. I'm thinking of the, the, the documentary they made about his war work as well, The Five Came Back. Um, yeah. Yeah, do you think that's that, that's so? Well, he's always been, um, he has a strong following of fans, uh, and It's a Wonderful Life in particular has a great many fans. I'm actually about to be in a new documentary on Capra, um, and I was in one that Sony Pictures made in the 90s, and um, so his, you know, following is strong, and the, his films keep coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. And but when I, the reason I did that book, he was kind of a hero of mine. Uh, I, I liked his films very much. Uh, he's the champion of the little guy against the system, and very inspiring mixture of comedy and drama. But when I met him in 1975, I was writing for Daily Variety, which was my film school, because mm. you know I, I didn't really have a clear idea of how films were made before I went to California. And I got this job in Variety, which enabled me to go on sets of films and interview all the filmmakers I wanted to interview. And I learned a lot about the business. And so one thing I was doing was um, writing advanced obituaries of famous people and on that pretext I, I i went to palm springs to interview capra and uh he was in la quinta actually which is near palm springs and and i, I just wanted to meet him and i i said i'll do an interview with you for variety and i was also 
you know, getting information for his eventual obituary. But I very quickly realized he wasn't the man I thought he was because I uh, was having lunch with him at a fancy country club and he was, you know, supposedly this man of the people. And he was telling me how he hated bankers and rich people, that whole rap that he liked to give to, to young people to portray himself as a liberal iconoclast. And this guy came over with a suit on, you know, and he, he said, here, Frank, are the pictures of you pres playing golf with President Ford. And he put them on the table and there are a bunch of pictures of the president putting and Frank Capra's hold, uh, I'm sorry, Frank Capra was putting and Gerald Ford was holding the pin, which I, I thought was a, a wonderful thing for an immigrant, you know, immigrant dream. The president is holding your uh, the pin while you're putting, you know. And Capra was saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? Jerry Ford's such a great guy. And, oh, he's terrific. He's a funny guy. You know, when he hits the ball, it goes all over the place. Ford was known for erratic golfing and he would hit people on the head with the golf ball and stuff. <laughs> But anyway, then then the guy took the pictures and said, I'll, I'll make copies for you, Frank. And uh, Capra turned back to me and he said, uh, where was I? He said, oh, yeah, I was telling you how I hate bankers and rich people. And he just picked up without a, a beat, you know. And I thought, oh, he's not the man. This is just an act that his hatred of bankers and rich people. And here he's hobnobbing with rich people and the president of the United States. And wait a minute. And I kind of made a mental note, find out more. And I began uh, realizing that, you know, there are many contradictions in his films. There's some liberal ideas and then there'd be conservative ideas and all through the spectrum his films sometimes were accused of being communistic and sometimes very reactionary and it was people were confused by that they didn't realize it's mainly because he had a, a range of different writers he worked with they were attributing everything to him because he was trumpeting the auteur theory before it was called that and his book is called the name above the title everybody believed his autobiography it was a very charming book you know then what happened was well, he worked with all kinds part of his secret was he worked with writers on the whole spectrum from communists to conservatives and liberals and in between and he took what he wanted from from the best of them and most were on the liberal side. But Capra was a lifelong Republican, I found out, and hated Franklin D. Roosevelt, which is surprising because he's considered the director of the New Deal on film. But anyway, so then we dissolved forward to 1982. I'm writing the American Film Institute Life Achievement Award shows, which were a great thrill for me, the best experiences I had as a screenwriter because I got to work with all these great stars and directors and, and put together what I considered film history for the masses, you know, a 90 minute or two hour TV show entertaining people but telling them, you know, about the, the works of some great figure. I did Fred Astaire, Jimmy Stewart, Frank Capra, John Huston, and Lillian Gish. So I'm, I'm, when I was doing the Capra show, it was a real treat for a, a youngish guy in his 30s to work with all these great people. So I was doing the Capra show, and I got to know him quite well because the producer, George Stevens Jr., who was my writing partner, said, you know, the show will rise and fall on the quality of his speech. And he's not a good public speaker. He was a rather halting public speaker. English was his second language, and he, he wasn't a terribly articulate guy, but he could be effective, you know. And so I, I, I spent two months with him Going, I would go down to the desert and he and I would write the speech together and we rehearsed it over and over and over. And I, and I was, you know, making sure that it was good. And I planned the camera angles and the lighting and everything. And I got to know him a lot because we'd have dinner and we'd have long talks. And <clears throat> I learned a lot about him that was not part of his public image and things that contradicted his book. And then I would talk to people who worked with him, like Claudette Colbert and Jimmy Stewart, and I was finding out things that were contradictory to his book. And, and then during that research period, the biggest discovery I made, I went to the Wesleyan University uh, cinema archives. They had 
Capra's papers he had donated there, and nobody had seen them yet. Even the archivist, Janine Basinger, hadn't opened the boxes. They were in the basement, and I called her up, and she, she was very cooperative and said, yeah, come on on, you know, we'll go through the papers. And, and I was starting to, you know, wonder, you know, my big question was, what happened to Capra after World War II? He was mm. a great, great director until 1946. He made its wonderful life, and then his career tanked is a very precipitous drop off. And I was bothered by that as a Capra admirer. I knew that something catastrophic had happened to him. And so I, I, I had a keen reporter's instinct for where to look. In his in his book, he, he, he wrote about in 1951, he went to a film festival in India to represent the US government and he was inveighing against communism. And it's a very strident passage in his book that doesn't seem to jibe with his uh, Pose as being this great humanist and lover of mankind, and he's he was just really harsh and uh, strident. So I, I asked for the box for 1951, and within 10 minutes I had the, the basic story, which was he was an informer during the blacklist period. I found out that he had informed on uh, several of his colleagues, uh, mostly writers. He got in trouble with the uh, witch hunt, and it's ironic because he was a very patriotic uh, guy, and he was a right-wing Republican, and uh, but he was there were charges against him. Partly that he was a social critic in his films, mm. was seen differently in, in the conservative climate of the post-war era, but also that he had, uh, there were some charges that were kind of silly, like uh, he got propaganda material from Russia in World War II. Well, yeah, he was, Russia was our ally and, and we were making, he, he made the, a film about Russia, you know, because that was part of the Why We Fight series and there's nothing wrong with that. But he was, he was working with a lot of left-wing writers was one of the charges and that was actually true. But it was guilt, guilt by association, and, and uh, you know the whole investigation was faulty because under our constitution, you have the right to have any political beliefs you want, whether you're a communist or a fascist or whatever, as long as you don't try to overthrow the government. That's the that's the line you can't cross. And so these people were being persecuted for being left wingers, and Capper worked with a lot of them, and he panicked, and he wrote a 230-page uh, roughly document defending himself and turning in a bunch of his writers and other people basically saying the writers made me do it you know they mm. made, me, made me put in this uh, left-wing stuff in my films but i was really a true patriot catholic conservative republican you know so i, I and this created a sort of traumatic sort of break for him yeah it, it really was destructive to his um sense of self and uh, first of all that the u.s government would turn on him after he was so loyal and patriotic he made the why we fight films and other films during the war and he was a very loyal citizen he came from italy uh but you know a lot of immigrants loved the united states more fervently than the people who were born here. And he was one of them. And his films are very pro-American. But they also criticize the flaws in our system and, and uh, things that don't live up to it. Like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which is a film I always greatly admired, uh, deals with the corruption in Washington and, and people who are not living up to the ideals of Amer American values. But I found out neither was Capra. Capra was betraying the Bill of Rights and the rights of individuals. And it, it, it was a terrible blow to him personally, because I think he had a conscience. He felt mm. guilty about it. And he basically exiled himself from Hollywood. He was afraid of being blacklisted or uh, called to testify. And he just fled down to his ranch in uh, Southern California and basically didn't make films for a few years. He made some uh, TV shows for kids. And then he, he had a 
an attempt to come back late 50s, early 60s, it was really uh, kind of disastrous. But he lost his mojo, you know, creatively. Mm. He didn't have, uh, after the war, he didn't have his old skills, even just as a filmmaker. And also the kinds of stories he was trying to make, I read them all, they were mostly terrible. He said he wouldn't work with any liberals anymore. And, uh, you know, if you say that, you're not working with 98% of Hollywood, you know. <laughs> And, uh, but he was afraid of social ideas. And that's the biggest legacy of the blacklist. Even today, Hollywood is afraid of uh, controversial uh, ideas that are really challenging. They'll do safe uh, social issues, but they don't do things that are really challenging. And they're more timid now than they were even back in the 30s and 40s. And that's that's what happened to Capra is he lost his courage and uh, he, he betrayed his ideals. And uh, But this was all a big secret. And, and my sense as a journalist, I'm sitting on a really big story. And so I should really do something uh, with this. And I sat, I sat around for a couple of years and then I thought, well, I'll write a book about him, write a biography, because um, it took a lot of research to fill in the story. I had the basic outlines mm. of it. So I wrote a really good proposal that is similar to the book, but I interviewed an awful lot of people and I did a tremendous amount of research. It took seven and a half years to do the book. Did you did you confront him with this the document? Did you uh, interview and talk to him about that specifically? Well, we did to some extent. I, I interviewed him for about a year, and he was very testy to interview. Uh, he wasn't as cooperative as he was once I started writing the book, because I made it clear that it was like he always said it was one one man, one film was his mantra, and I said it's one man, one book. He tried to control the book, and I found out that secretly behind the scenes he was colluding with his archivist and my own editor to stop the book. The Capper family and my and the archivist and my editor Robert Gottlieb is a very famous book editor. Simon at uh, Kanoff were trying to stop my book or neuter, neuter the book. So I was talking to Capra about a lot of subjects. I was focusing first on his early days, things that, you know, I needed to get, for, you do kind of triage when you do a book, you interview the oldest people first and then uh, people who have the stories that nobody else could tell. So I was focusing a lot on his youth and his parents and I was building up to the more sensitive things and I would, I, I got into his film career and I, we touched on some of these political issues. He was very touchy about it and he was uh, not happy to talk about it very defensive but I, I I was waiting to really confront him with it later in the process but he had a s series of strokes after a year and I wasn't allowed to see him after a while the family stopped me from seeing him but he was very diminished psychologically or physically after that um, so I never got a chance to really just say here's the whole story and, and let's have it out here but I had all the facts because I had all the documents and I got documents from the government and you know Freedom of Information Act and I interviewed people he informed on and, and so I had the whole story and early on my editor said to me uh, Robert Gottlieb you know it all you may know too much he said the slasher will go to work and that's a very strange thing for an editor to tell an author because you'd think that a biographer should know it all and isn't that good uh, and, and but then also how did he know that I knew it all because he was colluding with the archivist they became friends and Capra family and they were trying to stop the revelations in this book. And, and so I spent four years, the seven and a half years, four years of that were spent on a legal battle to get the book out. It became a really Kafka-esque uh, thing. I wrote a whole book about that called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra. It came out in 2019. It's a 600-page account of uh, legal struggle to get the book out. I was trying to free the book from Knopf, 
because I realized they wouldn't publish it the way I wrote it. So I, I took it away to Simon and & Schuster and I wasn't allowed to quote from his unpublished works, even though they had promised that I could. And then they reneged on the promise. But so I had to, uh, as, as the lawyer at Random House said, uh, I used the word paraphrase and he said, not paraphrase, summarize. Paraphrase is too close for, for, com for comfort, you know? So I had to summarize the content of uh, unpublished works. Also, there were a couple of unfavorable court decisions that came out the Salinger case and an L. Ron Hubbard case that limited the rights of authors to quote from unpublished letters, which used to be fair use up to a certain point. And, and the, now you a lot of publishers just won't let you quote unpublished letters at all. And it really hampers biographers. But I was able to report the gist of what all these things said. And actually, I think it helped the book because the book was too long. And uh, I put it in my own words instead of Capra's. So it became more analytical. And I think uh, I'm a better writer than Capra anyway. So <laughs> so you get over those ob the obstacles become virtues uh, after a while perhaps. yeah and I, I had interviewed him extensively and he had been interviewed by other people and uh, I was able to quote letters he wrote when he worked for the US government because those were public domain mm -hmm. and so uh, and, and documents he wrote for the government uh, you know I was able to quote from those so I, I was able to tell the entire story and then uh, I got his FBI file and other documents uh, soon after the book was published in 1992, it, it took me seven years to get his FBI records uh, released. And so I did an updated edition in the year 2000 with a, a lengthy appendix, and I reproduced some of the government documents that I got to fill out the story. So it's a more, even more complete. And then I, I did the whole second book where I filled in even more things that I hadn't been able to report earlier. And how did you feel? I mean, when you when you come towards a subject, you said earlier that John Ford's your favorite director, for instance, and you've written about Billy Wilder as well, who's one of my favorite directors, certainly. Do you sort of have a, a little bit of, um, what's the word, trepidation that you that you might find out something that will diminish your view of them? Well, I'm, you know, I, I really believe in reporting things honestly. I I just did a book uh, called Political Truth, The Media and the Assassination of President Kennedy. And it's the second book I've done on the Kennedy assassination, which I think has been misreported and lied about by the government and the media in America and the mainstream media, but not independent writers have, tried, have told the truth and come up with a lot of material. But the, the mainstream media have lied to us. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, that took a lot of gutsiness to kind of confront all that. Uh, for a long time, there were people who were stigmatizing people who wrote, wrote about that case, and, and people still are to some extent, and, and even your friends would give you a hard time about it, but I just don't care. And I dedicated this new, new book, Political Truths, to my parents, and I said, they're honest journalists who showed me the way, you know, just tell the truth. And I, I was raised as a Catholic kid to tell the truth, you know. Mm. It got it got me in trouble a lot because I was very honest in Hollywood. And somebody said, well, no wonder you had trouble in Hollywood, you're honest, you know, because <laughs> it's a very dishonest town and the industry is very corrupt. So I, I really don't care about, I mean, I, like one of my friends, Bob Thomas, who was a good Hollywood biographer, when I was uh, telling him about how Barbara Stanwyck and Capra had a romance and I got Barbara Stanwyck to give me an interview and I interviewed Capra about it and I got into it in, in ways, it's an interesting subject because he was dating her at the same time he was dating the woman who became his second wife. And, and Bob said, geez, you know, uh, you're really going to print all that stuff? And I said, sure, why not? They both talked to me about it. I got letters, I interviewed other people who knew them and he said, yeah, but maybe Barbara Stanwyck might not have lunch with you again if, when the book comes out. And I, I thought, well, wait a second, Bob, I don't exactly hang out with Barbara Stanwyck and have lunch with her on a regular <laughs> basis. You know, but 
I mean, if, if that's the price I have to pay, fine. You know, you get a certain amount of flack. I've gotten some flack from Capra fans. And John Ford is an interesting case because he's a very complex man with many sides to him. It took me 31 years to write a biography of him because he was so complex, I had trouble sorting out. He seemed very progressive in some ways, very conservative in others. And his racial views were complex and his historical views were complex. And personally, he, he could be a, a terrible tyrant and bully and he was a bad family man. Man, and, and yet he was a very tender man in his films, very beautiful portrayal of family life and very, very emotional man. And yet he, he, he had this protective facade of being this rough, tough cowboy, which was just a big facade. But um, along the course of doing that, I, I, I was talking to Abraham Polanski, who was a blacklisted writer-director who I, I, I knew and admired. And I, I called Ford conservative, and he said, no, you can't just call him conservative. He, that's too limiting. He was he was partly conservative and partly liberal. And that, that kind of unlocked it for me that I realized Ford was a man of parts. And mm -hmm. Capra was too. And uh, another person I'm interested in, Richard Nixon, was like that. And uh, most people, most of us, if we're honest, we have a lot of different parts to our personalities, and they don't always cohere. And I, I think there's a tendency I had, and uh, sometimes biographers do, of forcing the parts to together into some coherent package. But we don't always uh, make sense to ourselves and we contradict ourselves. There's a quote from Walt Whitman, do I contradict myself very well, then I contradict myself. I'm large, I contain multitudes. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true of Ford, you know. And so I was, I thought, okay, I'll just say, you know, sometimes he was a tyrant, sometimes he was a really sweet guy and generous, and sometimes he was progressive, and sometimes he was right-wing. But uh, I did find out some things that troubled me. For example, I found out he was an anti-Semite to some extent. And that really bothered me, because I had heard a couple of his writers said he was anti-Semitic, and I, I thought they were probably uh, not being fair to him. And then I but I found a couple of letters during the war that had anti-Semitic expressions in them. And that really kind of hurt me, you know, because I, I admire him a lot. But I told the truth and reported that. And <clears throat> a friend of mine who admires Ford said, yeah, that really hurt her to read that too. But she, she said it had to be in there. You got to tell the truth about these people. And so there are painful things that you find out about people you, you write about. And I, I've written three books on Orson Welles, and he was a complex character. Uh, he could be somewhat tyrannical. I think that the, the extent to which he was tyrannical is somewhat of a myth that I worked I worked with him as an actor for five years as well as writing three books on him and he actually made life a lot of fun for the cast and crews of his films he was kind of tough on the crews he was a hard taskmaster uh, master mm. and he was a perfectionist and the crews were like 19 20 year old guys and a couple women but they worked terribly hard. We all worked 18-hour days with him, and we all did it willingly because we knew it was the best work we'd ever do in film. So I, I was in this film, The Other Side of the Wind, and he'd lose his temper occasionally, but a lot of times he was extremely sweet and entertaining. He would tell funny stories. He would make jokes and even sing songs from his high school plays and things. And so he was a man of many moods, and as, as most artists are, you know. And, and so I report uh, even, you know, my first book on Wells when I was really young, I tended to be a little more gullible in the early days, but I, I reported a good, the good side and the bad side. And one time he was shooting the film and he, he, I heard his voice from the other room. He said, uh, Joe would like Christopher Plummer because Christopher Plummer 
Connor doesn't like my Shakespearean performances either. And I, <laughs> I, I hastened in the other room and I said, Orson, you know, um, that's not true. I think your uh, Falstaff is your greatest performance in Chimes of Midnight. And I said, I think you're, you're good as Macbeth, uh, but I thought you were miscast as Othello, you know, and I, I think he's, my admiration for his Macbeth has increased since then. But he still, you know, I mean, I, I made it clear I thought his Othello was not a good performance and the film is very flawed. And, you know, I, I tell it like it is. The new Coen Brothers Macbeth is, uh, is very awesome. Wells inflected, I think. Yeah, it is. I just wrote a book on the Coen Brothers called The Whole Dern Human Comedy, Life According to the Coen Brothers, coming out March 1st. That's just Joel Coen by himself. Ethan is not working with him on that film. They've taken a hiatus for a while and we'll see how long that lasts. But it is very Wellsian. It is, it's very stylized. Like Wells's film was all shot on a soundstage like uh, Joel Cohn's film in black and white too. Sorry, I, inter I interrupted you. You, uh, you're talking about the other side of the wind. I mean, I saw that at Venice when it first showed. It had its premiere there. It was such a magic experience. I mean, I, I, I know there's controversy about how far it can be said to be a Wells film, but but I was I, I was really impressed by it. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I think it's a very complex, uh, highly uh, advanced film, and if you could imagine back in 1972 or so, I thought if this film comes out now, are people going to get it? Because like the cutting is extremely fast. Now now people are used to fast cutting, but even some of my friends saw it, they thought, wow, I can't keep up with the cutting, you know. And uh, it's a very adventurous film with many characters and different uh, kind of plot lines and character layers, etc. Very sophisticated film. I keep seeing new things in it every time I see it. And I've, you know, spent 48 years. I tried to uh, raise money to complete the film. I spent years working with the cameraman, Gary Graver, to, to complete it. And then we had a deal for a while with Showtime and that fell through. It's a long story. And I wrote a book about that called Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, A Portrait of an Independent Career, which is mostly about his later years when I knew him. But it, it kind of goes through his early life to show how he got to the point of being completely independent after being pretty much an independent filmmaker his whole life who worked for a major studio briefly but major studios but he was totally independent in his later years and but you know i think that other side of the wind i think it is certainly a, a wells film although it was edited by bob morowski and he shares editing credit with Wells because Wells edited 41 minutes of it. Mm -hmm. And Wells often said editing was the most important part of filmmaking to him, to him because he had been burned by other people editing his work and he felt that's the time when you have the most control. And uh, there, was 90, there were 96 hours of footage, a lot of footage to boil down to two hours. And I think Bob did a great job of um, following Wells's template that Wells had established. There's a framing story and there's a film within the film. Wells cut parts of those, so Bob followed the editing style very faithfully, I think. And I was an advisor on the completion with Jonathan Rosenbaum, who's another Wells critic. And I wrote a 28-page single-space memo with suggestions after I saw the, you know, a kind of advanced rough, not a rough cut, but a semi-final cut. And they made, they, they followed some of my suggestions and not others, and the same with Jonathan. Um, but we both felt that it was quite faithful to Wells's conception. And uh, there are a few things that I miss. For example, the scene in the car, the sex scene in the car, I think was the best scene in the film. In Wells's version, it's seven minutes long, and they cut it down to four and a half minutes. And I think it really hurts that scene. It actually changes the meaning of the scene to some extent, because in the original, it's, it's a tremendous tour de force of editing and uh, color. And uh, it's 
this woman is having an orgasm inside the car and the editing and, and the shooting is like an orgasm. It simulates the feeling of an orgasm. And in, in the f cut down version, it's um, watered down just by being shorter and less intense. And uh, the color is not as varied too because when they transfer film to, to video, it loses some of the uh, nuances of, uh, of color. And so it becomes more about a woman's sexual frustration than about than about orgasm, which is a very different feeling. And then she's kicked out of the car by her uh, boyfriend for she's screwing another guy while her boyfriend is sitting there, which is strange to begin with. But he kicks her out of the car and uh, it has a different feeling. And I. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I really think they diminished it, and I told them that. And I don't think they were happy I told them that. And so there's a few other things that they left out. But at some point, if Netflix agrees to do it, they will put out a, a Blu-ray edition with extras including the complete car sex scene and other scenes that are left out of the film. You know, nothing will ever be perfect. And the alternative, and a lot of people over the years said, well, let's leave it as it is and just, or, or turn it into a documentary and just use the stuff Wells edited. And I said, no, he shot so much of it. He shot almost all of it, except for a few shots that had to be done later, like um, special effects things that had to be inserted. I said, he shot this thing. It's very ambitious. It's his major film of his later years. We should get it out the way, as best we can, the way he wanted. And I think it's, it, it is a Wells film. It would make a great Criterion edition, I think, an addition to the Criterion collection. Yeah, they're interested in it. And uh, the producers really want to do it, but it's Netflix holding it up. And I'm very grateful to Netflix. And I always will be for putting up $6 million to finish it uh, because we, we offered it to everybody in Hollywood, every studio, and people like Spielberg and Lucas and Clint Eastwood and Oliver Stone and you know all kinds of people and, and everybody kind of threw their hands up in the air except Showtime. Uh, I had the idea of going to a cable network, which was very unusual back in the late 90s, but I, I could see that let's go to an alternative medium. Mm. And it wound up being with a streaming company, Netflix, who's very successful. And they, they put in a lot of money and they gave the filmmakers carte blanche to finish it. They didn't interfere at all. And at one point, um, they found out they had lost a lot of the original sound. Uh, they had, fortunately, they had the sound on, on dupe copies, but it needed a lot of work. They had an Oscar-winning sound guy kind of augmenting and fixing the sound. And then we we redubbed uh, some of the lines. I redubbed 17 of my lines, for example, to improve the quality of the sound, and um, which was a very surreal experience 40, 48 years later. And I said to the sound guys, uh, don't I sound different? I mean, you know, I'm 48 years older and I've been 
I was a smoker and <laughs> they said, no, you sound about the same. And they said, if, if there's a problem, we can fiddle with the electronics and make it. And it turned out fine. You can't really tell the difference, you know? And th there's a funny story at the very end of the sound process. There's a scene where I get on a bus and I could walk and I could talk in those days. I was a non-actor and Wells just guided me along and I did whatever he told me to because he was the greatest director of actors and films. But I could walk and I could talk, but I couldn't do both at the same time. So I had to do uh, some lines and turn around and, and walk and talk and say some lines and I just couldn't get it right. And Wells turned to Paul Stewart, who is the actor in Citizen Kane, who's the butler who finds Kane's body. And uh, he was in other side of the wind and he had become a good TV director. And Wells turned to Stewart and he said, Paul, could you tell him how to do this? Paul Stewart said, you stop here, you do this, you turn here, you say the line, you turn left, you turn right, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so I did it all in one take and Wells thought, he, he thought that was very funny. He called me one take pister. Pister was my <laughs> character name. So now we dissolve forward 40 odd years and I'm asked to redo the line by the editor. And I, I was doing it in a studio here in Berkeley and Bob was in LA on a hookup, you know, and he had me redo the line and he wanted me to change the inflection a little bit in the middle because, you know, I didn't tamper with Wells's lines, but it, he had me do it a little differently in terms of the inflection. I said, why? And he said, trust me, it's, it's the way I'm going to edit it. So I did it 17 times and I finally got it right. And then he said, cut. And he said, this, this is a historic moment. This is the last sound recording on the other side of the wind. And then I said, you know, Bob, it took three directors to get that line reading, Orson Welles, Paul Stewart, and Bob Murawski. And he, he said, that tells you something about the line reading, doesn't it? You know, <laughs> the, perform the performance, you know. It's on you. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah, I said, well, thank you, Bob. He said, I'm just kidding. But, you know, but it was really a, a treat to, uh, you know, I, I was able to, to be a better actor because I've learned a lot since then. And I was kind of, the first day of shooting, I did a lot of takes and I was, uh, kind of intimidated and wasn't at my best. Was that the first acting you did or had you done acting before then? I had not, not really acted. I, I was not an actor in school. I was an altar boy in Catholic school, which I think is a form of acting. Same here. I was an altar yeah, oh, boy. Oh, were you? Were you? Yeah. 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 Well, you know what it's like to me? I, I call it a Robert Brissonian kind of acting because you you have your back to the audience and you're speaking Latin and you're speaking in a monotone and you don't have facial expressions. You're not allowed to improvise, you know, <laughs> and yeah. that's, the, it's a form of, but it's, it's theater. I remember I used to, you know, I mean, you had different jobs, but I, I had the candle, I held the candle. And there was always this thing we used to do of tilting the candle. So the wax would run down across your fingers yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it would scold your hands, but you would hold it there. And then you could peel it off while the priest was talking. And that was, oh, sort yeah. of like... <laughs> it was kind of fun to peel the candle, yeah. but you didn't want to get burned by the, uh, yeah, I had to carry the cross and carry the candles and all that kind of, it was, it was fun to be involved in that kind of theatrical thing. And, uh, but that was about my whole experience as an actor before I worked with Wells. And since then I've, I've had little parts in films and I've made a point of being a, an extra and a, uh, in various films just for fun and, and some friends of mine have put me in films and, and I've done a lot of public speaking since then uh, as a teacher and, uh, and being interviewed and everything and I've gotten a lot better at that kind of thing. So let's let's talk about your your new book which uh, as you say comes out in well it, it will be out by the time this podcast comes out. Let's put it that way. Uh, I thought it was a really interesting, the, the way that the book was structured, because you were basically kind of answering criticisms of the Coen brothers, sort of per chapter. It was like, you know, people say they're cold. Okay, 
let's 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 look at that you know right what gave you that idea for for how to structure it well i i wrote uh, a lot of that book was written for a uh, collection i did in 2017 called two cheers for hollywood which is a big book of my short pieces the best of my short pieces that i collected over the years i thought i should add some new things to it so i thought well the cone brothers i've always felt were misunderstood and kind of underappreciated even though they they get awards and they get hailed by critics uh, just, but you know there are a lot of misconceptions about them and that's one reason i write books to uh, to write a wrong or injustice or a misconception and so i wrote a lot of it then and then i when i got called by Anthem Press in England. They said, would you like to do a book for us? And I said, how about a book on the Coen brothers? I thought I'd like to separate out that material and add to it The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which was a wonderful film I think they did for Netflix. It's kind of a compendium of their work. It's six stories in one, and it, it, it makes a very good completion for the package. But, the, you know, the, the method I followed was kind of I think inspired by my Jesuit education. I, I had Jesuit priests who were brilliant guys. And they, the way they teach you, especially in religion class, is what they used to call it, um, is to defend your faith, you have to uh, answer arguments, either critical of your faith or, f for example, I think one of the best courses I took in senior year was a religion class called Heresies, which is kind of a funny title, but really it's comparative religion. What it was, mm. we, we, learned, we learned about all the other religions so we could defend our faith against um, you know, why, you know, other religions have different views and why are ours right and there's there's wrong. Heresies is such a good title. It's like, why everybody else is wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the negative um, spin they put on it. But actually, the guy who taught me, Father Charles Shinners, was the most brilliant priest I had there. And he was a very sophisticated guy. And he didn't approach it like that. They're all a bunch of horrible heretics or anything. He was saying, well, here's what they believe. And Protestants believe this. The Baptists believe this. The Episcopalians and Jewish uh, religion is this and Muslims. And, you know, it was fascinating to me. And, and actually, it helped accelerate my leaving the church because I, I began thinking, well, you know, a lot of these religions have some pretty good ideas here, you know, and we don't have a monopoly on it. But it, it's supposed to um, uh, refine your arguments. And so what the Jesuits taught me was partly how do you, how do you uh, convince people of something? You ask the other guy what he believes and then you tear it apart. And you get people to, to express themselves because quite often people will just say, oh, that film is boring or something. That, that doesn't really help have a discussion. But if you say, well, why do you think it's boring? And then you get them to say because of X, Y, and Z, and then you rip it apart and you show them they're wrong. And, you know, it, it gets more sophisticated if, if the opponent's argument is more sophisticated. So I thought that's a good method. And, and my son goes to Stanford and he, he said one of his professors made the same point. He said, if you have a foil in an argument, it's very good for a paper. Uh, it's, and I been doing that in my work, you know, and uh, a lot of my books on film, I will answer objections people have to Capra's work or Wells's work, or sometimes I agree with the objections, sometimes I dispute them, but it's a very good starting point for argumentation. And uh, that's kind of what film criticism should be, is a kind of enlightened discourse, um, respectful, but, you know, passionate arguments like we used to have in the 60s. Today, people aren't as passionate as they used to be. Oh, I, th I think they're passionate. I just think they're not as good at arguing. I think yeah. it's all passion and no Jesuitism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. It's not as logical. I think mm. my students, when I teach writing, I think the two things they lack the most are clarity and logic. And Hitchcock said clarity is the most important thing in filmmaking, and it's certainly true of writing. 
but logic, I was very illogical when I went to college and I took a course in logic, which was really helpful to me because it really made me a clear thinker. But the Jesuits came first, but there was a lot of religion is fairly illogical. So I was I was believing in a lot of fantasies and illogical things and I had to get, get rid of those ideas. But so with the Cohen brothers, I, I would think, I, I, I naturally thought, well, you know, people say they're nihilistic or they're, they mock people or they're um, uh, insensitive about ethnic humor or, you know, they're wise guys, shallow wise guys or whatever. And I, so I, I thought it'd be fun to take every section of the book starts with a, a paragraph in italics of the rap against them on one of these issues. And then I, I go into it and I mostly disagree, but sometimes I'll admit, yeah, some of these films are kind of, you know, shallow or there are moments when they become silly or sophomoric or, but they're, I don't think they're nihilistic. I think they're, they're jaded idealists, mm. just like Billy Wilder. I think I think they're the sons of Billy Wilder. Is, is kind of one reason I like them. That if Billy Wilder were making films today, he'd be making films more kind of like the Coen Brothers. They're, they're very good social satires. They're mixtures of comedy and drama. <clears throat> they blend genres in very daring ways, which gets some people upset because some people don't like to be whipsawed between comedy and tragedy. And uh, but Wilder did that in his best films, like The Apartment and Some Like It Hot and Ace in the Hole. Ace in the Hole. Yeah, he was. A... I mean, you could imagine that. You could imagine the Coen Brothers making Ace in the Hole. Yeah, it's so acerbic, and um, uh, but people thought he was nihilistic, but he wasn't. He was defending. He, you know, he was. He was. It's actually kind of a film that has some religious overtones. Even it's about right and wrong, and what what a reporter's job really should be is to tell the truth uh, and and not uh, lie to the public and and not. Uh, create the story uh, you know just they should report the story and not invent it and all that is very it's it's a morality play you know mm. and, and so so is the apartment and um billy wilder's films are deceptively uh, serious as the coen brothers films are but they have a lot of sarcasm and humor and wild and crazy stuff going on in the coen brothers films and uh so I thought they're kind of like the sons of Billy Wilder. And, uh, uh, but I think Wilder was, he was often stigmatized as being cynical. That was the word you hear all the time. And I once used that word to him uh, when I interviewed him a lot. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I didn't, you know, he actually said, um, but if I'm cynical, what adjective do you have for Peckinpah pictures? I thought it was a great comment. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to stigmatize you with that word because cynical is just another word for realistic, isn't it? And he said, yeah, every play by Ibsen was cynical, right? Every play by Strindberg was cynical. And uh, he just said, I'm basically just a reporter. You know, he's, he was a reporter at heart, an old reporter. And I like that. I mean, that's something I have in common with him. And when I met him, he and I got along right away because old reporters kind of get along with each other. And he was kind of doing exposés throughout his career. So so Wilder, I think, was a disappointed romantic is what his mm. writing partner, I.L. Diamond, called him. And he said it was an old Viennese tradition of Schnitzler and those uh, bittersweet writers from, from that period were disappointed romantics. But underneath the veneer of hard hardness and wise guy stuff there's there's a, a warm beating heart there and, and a love for people but he, he's very unsentimental and the coen brothers are unsentimental and and i th i see them as sort of i don't know about disappointed idealists i don't think they ever had much expectation for the human race to begin with but they're jaded idealists they they have their, their characters often talk about a bigger scheme of things in life and what is life, what is, what's the meaning of life. You think of Tommy Lee Jones in, in No Country for Old Men. <clears throat> he's a lawman with a great sense of honor and rectitude, but he's no match for the modern world and, and the 
the horrible evil of serial killers and things like that. And he admits that he's uh, outmatched by the modern world. And that's the tragedy of this man that he can't function anymore, can't can't change things. And so that's what the Cones are interested in. And so I find it very useful to have this argumentation going on. And you know, some people will disagree with some of the arguments. That's fine too, but we get a discussion. I think the key scene in um, No Country for Old Men is when Kelly McDonald's character conf is confronted by Javier Bardem's character. Sorry, I'm, oh, yeah. the character's names escape me at the moment, but, and she refuses to choose a heads or a tails. And she Yeah, sort that's of, a great, it's a great scene at, toward the end of the film where she mm. knows she's going to die. Mm. And unlike the poor guy earlier in the film who played the game with him with the heads or tails thing about death, life or death, she just sort of accepts fate, but she's kind of staring the guy in the face. She's very courageous mm. and uh, she confronts him that she knows she's going to die. And I guess maybe there's a glimmer of hope that he might change his mind, but he doesn't. Mm. So she's, she's realistic and the Cone brothers are realistic. They don't expect this guy to change. So he's left uh, still on the loose at the end of the film. Absolutely. And it ha has that great ending where Tommy Lee Jones is having a recounting a dream he had about death and his dead father. And uh, it, I found it interesting that sometimes the cones are accused of lack of subtlety. That's one of the raps against them. But here they have a very subtle ending, which was taken from earlier in the book. Um, and it's a beautiful ending of this man talking about this dream that he had about his father. And it's a great ending to the film. It really is clear to me what it means. And yet a lot of the audience really didn't like that because it did, it's not the conventional ending. It's it's uh, oblique and subtle, you know, doesn't, mm. doesn't spell it out what he's talking about, but you have to be intelligent. You know, they play to the intelligence of the audience like Lubitsch and Wilder did. The one thing I did disagree with you on the, in the book though, is uh, you the, you indulged in a little bit of Miller's Crossing hate, which I was oh, like, yeah. I, I love Miller's Crossing. I love I love the feel of that film and I love the I mean I get that it's a very slick pastiche and I don't agree with people maybe placing it at the top of the pantheon of gangster movies but I I do have a lot of time for that film I think Gabriel Byrne's performance and Albert Finney's performance are, are you know really really lift it well that's interesting yeah I, that's one film that I basically say I just don't like very much another is the Hudsucker Proxy which mm. uh, is kind of a silly film but um I, I know that there are a lot of people who love Miller's Crossing and I, I I'm willing to entertain the idea that I'm, I'm just wrong, but that's that's what makes show business, right? And I, I, I respect it because it's beautifully made and uh, the acting is terrific. And I, f I find the plot kind of muddled too. And uh, it, it sort of lacks the humor that uh, in their, most of their films, there is humor, even in the, the dark films like No Country for Old Men and uh, some of the other ones, uh, Serious Man, there is a kind of a, a gallows humor. And in, in some of the parts of... Um, Buster Scruggs that are really grim there is a kind of horrifying humor in there uh, which comes from the tradition of Jewish humor to some extent which is gallows humor like mm. Schindler's List has some dark humor in it and the, the exchanges between Ben Kingsley and, and Liam Neeson there's some real gallows humor about death in there and it's it, it, it doesn't lighten the proceedings but it gives a kind of perspective to it about life you know that i quote that line from king lear as flies to wanton boys or we uh they kill us for, for the for their sport you know that that's kind of the tone of some of the coen brothers films that were kind of trapped like flies to wanton boys if macbeth you know which was um well i mean if buster scruggs i guess turns out to be their last 
film. What which which of the movies would you sort of, if you had to save one from a fire, which was would mm-hmm. the one you would run in and save? Yeah, that's like Orson Welles was asked which film you take to a desert island. He said Grand Illusion would be the one he would take to a desert island. That's pretty good. You could watch that over and over. Uh, I I love uh, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and it has all different kinds of Cohen approaches. Uh, it has the straight drama approach, John Forty and episode with the wagon train, which is very sad and very dark and but and then some very raucous uh, black comedy at the beginning and a very fantastical opening and a very grim scene with the uh, armless legless thespian uh it has the gamut of their films but i also love um oh uh, you know the big lebowski everybody loves that film it's hard not to love it it's just wonderful oh there's so many films that there's that i'm fond of uh i even like the man who wasn't there for example Mm. that's a a film that isn't really talked about very much it's a it's a film that is kind of ignored uh oh brother where art thou is wonderful um burn after reading is another one that i think is one of their best films it's terrific political satire and it was kind of ignored when it came out it actually did well to box office because it has brad pitt but it's a very uh acerbic satire of the cia and stupid people who were willing to sell their country for for no good reason just to make a few bucks prescient yeah yeah i mean there are there are a lot of people like that the cones talk about their their league of morons is is what uh, uh one of the characters calls calls the characters in that film and that's the, the, a lot of their characters are idiots and morons usually i don't like comedy about stupidity but they make it really funny because we're all kind of moronic in, in some level of our personalities uh, i like um Inside Lewin Davis, mm. uh, it's a very personal film about show business and mm. art. Barton Fink, and of course Fargo. Uh, everybody loves Fargo with good reason. To, um, the character played by um, uh, Frances McDormand, and that is most uh, enduring character. She's she's just a, a wonderful character that they created. This pregnant police chief who's very good at her job solving the crimes out there in the the bitter cold of the Midwest and a serious man is a good film. That's a very dark, dark film about their Jewish roots in Minneapolis. A very interesting film that was very controversial and divides people. So I spent a lot of time discussing the nuances of that film. And yeah, you you kind of accept the criticism there as well. That's that's one occasion where you go, mm, maybe maybe the critics have got a point here. Yeah, to some extent, I think, um, you know, I tell my students the hardest thing to write is a mixed review. I found it's easy to write a slam on something or write just a rave, but a lot of films are sort of mixed, you know, Uh, very few films are perfect. I'd say perfect film, you know, Citizen Kane, Tokyo Story, they're a grand illusion, they're a handful, but um, a lot of films have some flaws somewhere, but, you know, even the flaws are integral to their strengths to some extent. I think to some extent, um, Serious Man is somewhat nihilistic uh, in a dark way. It, it it got criticized because people think the Cones are just having a big uh, laugh at humanity, and, and to some extent they are. But, you know, the, I, I make the point that the Book of Job is very nihilistic and dark, and uh, nobody criticizes the Book of Job for being too dark, right? Oh, I do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, well, okay. Yeah, I guess, if, yeah. The thing I love about the Book of Job is because I I looked into it when I was uh, I was looking at Tree Tree of Life, the Terrence Malick uh, film, and he quotes the Book of Job in the beginning. So I thought I haven't read I haven't read that book. So I I read it. And Mm -hmm. the, the joke in that is that when God turns up and says, you know, you know, how dare you ask these questions? Who are you? Where were you when all this happened? 
Yeah. He's he's bluffing because he you there. It's not like there's this. Why why does this these bad things happen to this good man? We know why because he wants to win a bet. Yeah yeah. Well, there is that there is that sense that God is playing with humanity, and that's a disturbing uh, theory of God. Uh, you know, when I was a Catholic, it took me years to break away from the church. It's very hard to do that. The two hardest things I had to do in my life were breaking away from the church and breaking away from the film industry, both of which saved my life, literally. But they were terribly hard to do. But one thing really impressed me when I was a kid that Voltaire said, if God exists, how I hate him. And I thought, wow, and Candide is like a Coen Brothers movie, or the Coen Brothers movies are like Candide. Very dark a view of humanity and uh, God is seen as a kind of a evil joker in a way like for example the Lisbon earthquake when something like 2,000 people died and they're all in a big cathedral all the the faithful God-fearing people got killed you know what kind of God would do that but in a very serious way um, in Elie Wiesel's night which is about Auschwitz he talks about the, the inmates of Auschwitz were watching for example a child being hanged you know the, the worst possible thing you can imagine and they they all said to themselves where is god you know there is mm. how could there be a god to allow this to happen and that's a big question of the modern world the post-world war ii world is where is god to allow the, all these terrible things to happen that take place in the world and the coen brothers films asked that question <clears throat> and a serious man literally asks the question, as does the book of Job. And in, in the book of Job, he goes to three learned friends to try to get answers. And in, in the a serious man, the, the guy goes to three rabbis to get answers, and they can't help him because they're either uh, clueless or one guy is sort of a goofball, just sort of joking with him. And it's very frustrating. This The, the hero is a very good man. At, at one point, he says, I'm not an evil man. You know, like, wh why am I... Why am I suffering? That's the eternal question of humanity. And there is no real answer to that, unfortunately. So they mm. raise the question. That's what artists do is they raise questions. They don't provide answers. So I kind of, you know, I, I when I see a serious man, I kind of go one way or another watching it. And I probably will in the future every time I see it. It depends on the mood you're in sometimes. Mm. Like mm. when I notice the older you get, films seem to change as you get older, but they don't change, you change, you know? Mm. Some films, like I loved Winwell when I was younger because he was anti-clerical and he was surrealistic and hilarious and dark. Now I, I don't find the same great interest in Winwell that I did back then, even though I still admire him. And I've maybe gone on to different kinds of films because we evolve. And mm. uh, But that's mm. what makes, you know, film criticism interesting. It's, it's kind of a snapshot of who you were at a certain time. And it's nice to, yeah, it's good to change. It's good to have that sort of fluidity in that. I'm always going back to, I'm always going back to things and trying to, to worry them, those questions that I have. And the mixed review is, you're right, it's extremely difficult to, to write, but at the same time, those are often the most intellectually sort of rewarding films to go back to because the, 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 the just not quite there. I don't know what it is, you know? Yeah, and, and it gives you food for thought and uh, room for, um, you know, because, you know, when you're writing film criticism, you're not just saying the readers are idiots and I know everything. You're, you hope to have a dialogue. Uh, you, you don't often meet your readers, but actually, you know, podcasts are great because you actually do meet your readers. Like you and I are talking to each other and you're raising good questions. And But, you know, in uh, Buster Scruggs, the scene with the wagon train, the way the Indians are depicted could be criticized for being one dimensional. And I talk about that in detail in, in, in my book. And I, I 
place it in the context of the Coens adopting tropes from genres in a kind of satirical, ironic way, that that was kind of the way Indians were portrayed in, in classic Westerns. And, uh, you know, I quote a, a Native American writer about the searchers. He says, when, when the Indians attacked the home and the searchers, it's seen as a kind of, an, you know, just an assault. But he said it's it's a defensive action against all the assaults that took place on them that you didn't see before the film happens. You know, you mm -hmm. got to look at it in context. And the Cone brothers, I think, honor our intelligence by making us realize that these Indians, why are they attacking this wagon train? Well, these the wagon train is invading their territory. You know, they're they're attacking because there were these people coming in, and it's uh, from the viewpoint of the white settlers, it's uh, unmotivated evil you know but not from the indian point of view and, and early in the film there's a humorous scene where some indians are saving james franco uh he thinks that one guy's going to save him and the guy just comes and laughs in his face because why should the indians save him what does he owe him you know he's a white guy out in the west and so i think they they expect us to have an intelligence about the whole context in which uh, these stories are presented and it's not a simple black and white answer right and wrong uh, you know it's that's one reason they're good is they they have very complex uh, attitudes toward subjects they look at them from different perspectives of comedy and drama and uh, philosophical attitudes which mm. helps enrich their work and not too many filmmakers today i mean one thing i think is great about them is they they make they're able to make personal films within the context of their american commercial filmmakers and yet they make very personal films which is almost miraculous today because the whole system is stacked against that spielberg can do that because he's so successful but even he sometimes has trouble like lincoln it took him a while to get financing for that but um the coen brothers part of the secret is they get most of their money from Europe, you know, from France. They're big in France and other European countries. So they get financed not from the United States very much because the United States, uh, the, unfortunately, the American film industry that I grew up with and revere is basically gone down the toilet completely, I think. You know, all, all, the only good, once in a while, there's a good film that comes out of Hollywood because some individual filmmaker has the clout, you know, like Scorsese or Spike Lee or the Coen brothers, Spielberg. But, um, you know, uh, I think that most of the movies today made by the mainstream Hollywood studios are these bloated $200 million Marvel movies and other big kind of spectacles. It's, we've gone back to what the film historians call the cinema of attractions, which is how film began. It was not a narrative art at the beginning. It was all just uh, special effects and uh, spectacle and things like electrocuting an elephant was a Thomas Edison film. Terrible film, but it is a spectacle. Uh, uh, you know, and today a lot of films are just things like, okay, let's have a science you know, a CGI extravaganza with cars flipping over and people zooming around. And the films are made for 12 to 24 year old adolescent male audience, basically. And so the female audience and the older audience are kind of left out. But so that the films that are most interesting today are the lower cost so-called independent films. Some of the independent films like Nomadland is a pretty good film, but that costs, I don't know, $10 million or something. That's considered low budget. But you can make a film. Anybody can make a film today. It's one of the wonderful things. If you have an iPhone, you can make a film on an iPhone for nothing. Yeah, Sean Baker with Tangerine. Yeah, yeah. Or you could you know, have a $500 camera and make a film. And I tell my students, all you need is a camera and feed the crew and the cast. You have to feed people and that's about it. And then you can edit the film. And uh, I've, I've had two or three students make films, feature films for no money and uh, the tr trouble is uh, getting them shown you know it's very democratic mm -hmm. anybody can make a film 
and Paul Schrader says, uh, if you make your own independent film, you're ahead of 95% of Hollywood in terms of the quality of the script, because 95% of the scripts are terrible. It's Sturgeon, mm -hmm. Sturgeon's Law, you know, uh, he was asked at a party, some guy said, what are you doing? He said, I write science fiction novels. And the guy said, 90% of science fiction novels are crap. And he said, 90% of everything is crap. But today it's really true. <laughs> but so, so if you can, you can write a script, if you're a talented screenwriter, you can spend three or four months writing a script, doesn't cost you anything, go out and shoot it and get actors and crew to work for nothing. And, but the trick is to get them seen. And theatrically, it's prohibitive because you have to take out ads and get theaters and even festivals, um, it's hard sometimes to get a film in festivals, although you could still do it. And if the film has quality, it'll be recognized and you can get people to endorse it. And, uh, but you know, there are more, more ways of showing it now. You can show it on streaming, you can show it on YouTube, you can uh, make your own DVD and sell your own DVDs. So there are more ways to distribute films. But I was talking to Tom Luddy, who he's, he co-runs the Telluride Film Festival. And I said, how many films are made in America every year? And he said about 7,000. And I said, how many play in theaters? This is before COVID. He said about 400. Mm -hmm. So that shows you the level of competition. Even in festivals, I had a, some, a student and a, a, she and another guy co-directed a film for $35,000 about gay conversion therapy, which is an interesting subject, you know, and, uh, but they couldn't even get that film shown in festivals, even gay and lesbian festivals. They couldn't get it shown. Uh, there's such competition. And it's a pretty good mm -hmm. film. So they had to release it. I, they put it out on home video, I guess. But, you know, you can get it shown and you could use it as a calling card film. You can give it to a producer and say, you know, I can direct a film and here's another script. Let me direct a film. Uh, it is, it, you know, it's, it's easier to make films. When I started, when I came out to Hollywood from California, <clears throat> I had films I wanted to make, but I didn't have any money. And so I, I had to do the usual route of going around to producers and studios and having meetings and stuff. And it's a, a very painful frustrating process and you know I, I got three or four films made and nine tv specials but i wrote 14 scripts so about 11 of those weren't filmed you know that's that's typical mm. of screenwriters and it's frustrating i didn't want to do that anymore because if you write a book it gets published in most cases and today with self-publishing it's it's a wonderful field because it opens up the field and i've been self-publishing some of my books and some are with like the billy wilder dancing on the edge book is with columbia university press and whatever happened to orson wells is with university press of kentucky but random house published uh, writing and pictures but I, i've self-published my books in the kennedy assassination because mm. no, ma no mainstream publisher would publish a book of that kind I've, I've got to ask you about that i'm so curious so so what's the in a, in a sort of nutshell what's your your theory or take well yeah that's a big question um <laughs> <laughs> well it's a big nutshell i guess <laughs> yeah i've studied this since 10 minutes after it happened um, I actually wrote a short story about the Kennedy assassination in 1961, in October 61, when I was a freshman in high school, because I, I was concerned about his security when I worked for him as a volunteer in 1960. I noticed he had almost no security. And I was a student of the Lincoln assassination, so I was worried about his safety. And, uh, my father actually asked him at, at a uh, dinner I went to in 1962, he had time for one question. He said, uh, Mr. President, do you ever worry about being assassinated? Kennedy said, yeah, I'm aware of the possibility, but he says, I can't think about it because if I did, I wouldn't be able to do my job. So that was his attitude. Unfortunately, he didn't think mm -hmm. about it enough. Uh, I think it was an uh, 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 inside government plot. The evidence is overwhelmingly clear because uh, it was a crossfire. It was covered up by the government. 
and a, and a innocent government would not cover up what really happened. And also the autopsy and the Warren Commission were controlled by President Johnson. The, the military controlled the autopsy, which was a fraud, and uh, they altered the body and, and uh, misreported the wounds to conform with their theory about a lone gunman. And Johnson uh, was, uh, you know, the commander in chief. And then he appointed the Warren Commission, which whitewashed the whole thing. So I think that elements of the CIA and the Defense Department were involved. And, and I discussed the question whether Johnson was involved. I think you can't avoid that question. When I was younger, it really bothered me to think about that. I didn't, they call that the point of maximum resistance in psychology. Mm. There's one thing we all have, we find hard to talk about it. I, I for, when I was younger, I didn't want to think that the president could, could have been involved. But that happens in a lot of countries that people are involved in conspiracies and plots against uh, the, the leader in charge. And so I think Johnson, his fingerprint was on certain aspects. I mean, I interviewed Senator Ralph Yarborough, who was riding in the car with Johnson in the motorcade. And I said, what was his demeanor in the motorcade? I don't think anybody ever asked that question. And he said, he was very preoccupied. He said he wasn't waving at people or smiling. And he said, I kept saying to him, why don't you wave to people? Everybody's, you know, happy to see you. And he mm. said he looked very preoccupied. And I said, why do you think he was? And Johnson that weekend was, um, there was a Senate investigation of his crooked finances. There was a guy mm. testifying before a Senate committee, Don Reynolds, about bribes that he, Johnson had uh, made him pay. He, he really had a good chance of going to jail or being dropped from the ticket. There was a lot of talk mm. about him being dropped from the ticket. And also that, that Friday, the Life magazine had a task force of eight or 10 writers in New York who were doing a big expose on his finances for the next issue of Life magazine. And they'd been doing reports on it. And so the, all, all the forces were working against Johnson. And if he hadn't solved the problem that weekend, he, his goose was cooked. Mm. Also, during the shooting, he, he is leaning over one of my mentors in the case, Penn Jones, a very independent uh, newspaper man from Texas, said Johnson was the only person in the motorcade who ducked. And I asked mm. Yarborough, why was that? And the official story was that the Secret Service man in the front seat jumped over the seat when the shots were fired and shielded Johnson with his body. And Yarborough said that was just a lie. It didn't never happen. He said there was no room in the back seat for anybody let alone a large man. And uh, he said Johnson was leaning over with the Secret Service man, Rufus Youngblood. They were listening to a walkie-talkie that Youngblood had. Of, they had two frequencies inside the motorcade of reporting what was happening. And they were both listening very intently to uh, the reports. And apparently before the shooting started, Johnson was leaning over. So, I mean, there are a lot of suspicious things about Johnson. The parade route, who, who planned the parade route, people involved with uh, Johnson. And some of Kennedy's aides, I believe Kenneth O'Donnell was disloyal to Kennedy, and he, mm. he helped plan the motorcade route. And he was going to be fired that Monday in, in uh, Washington for um, corruption. Yeah. And, uh, the more you dig into it, you find out more and more people were involved. Uh, you know, that's sometimes people make fun of conspiracy theorists saying it's a vast conspiracy, but the more you dig into it, there were quite a number of people who had to be involved. Overthrowing a government is, is a difficult matter. You can't just have one or two people do it. I mean, uh, some of the Secret Service, probably about five of the Secret Service men in Dallas were part of uh, the conspiracy. To, they, they sort of stripped Kennedy of protection mm. in different ways. And the Dallas Police Department was involved. J.D. Tippett, I wrote a book mostly about J.D. Tippett, the policeman who was shot. He was involved. I found out he was sent to, he and another policeman were sent to track down Oswald right after the assassination. 
either to mm. kill him or capture him. And what makes that very suspicious was the Dallas police ostensibly didn't know who Oswald was until they arrested him at 1.52. And Tippett mm. was killed about 1.09, and he was tracking down Oswald at the time. And they knew who he was right away because they had him under surveillance. And the last thing I'll say, Oswald was an FBI informant. He was working for the FBI, and he'd infiltrated the plot against Kennedy, not realizing he was being scapegoated for it. And I found out he met with the FBI two and maybe three times that November, more than people realize, and he right. was passing information. So it was a plot uh, with government agencies deeply involved in it. Wow. I will have to do a podcast just on that book. I'll have to read it and yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. talk about that. Because that's, that's, well, that, thanks so much. By the way, oh yeah, one last question. A recommended film book, please. Oh, um, you know, the one that sprang to mind right away was Kevin Brownlow's The Parade's Gone By. All right. It's a magnificent book. It came out in 1967, a big, beautiful volume with great photographs. It's his history of the silent movie period. And Brownlow, who's still flourishing in England, a um, great film scholar, probably the preeminent historian of the silent period, was a very young man. And he went to Hollywood when all these people were still around, like Mary Pickford. And he met Charlie Chaplin in London and he interviewed all these great silent movie people. And I came along a little later and I made it my point to interview silent movie people and, and other people. But he, he got to people that had died already by the time I came. And he did really wonderful in-depth interviews with all of them. And it's a very loving, very rich portrait of a great period in film history, which I tend to think that was that was the golden age of film, that it kind of peaked about 1927. It's all been downhill since then, you know. <laughs> the art form reached a pinnacle. Mary Pickford had a great line. She said, uh, it would be more natural for talking pictures to come out of silent pictures rather than the other way around. I thought that was a profound comment mm, that's that's brilliant that's that's a great uh, a great recommendation i should put that on my list yeah thanks so much for talking to me joseph it was an absolute pleasure well thank you john that was great to talk to you and it was fun having a lively discussion on the cone brothers which i hope my book uh, spurs so thank you thank you for your very well informed and uh, interesting comments I really appreciate it. So that was my conversation with Joseph McBride. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Learned a lot. Uh, didn't quite expect it to go in so many different directions, but that's all to the good. Uh, a really, a really great conversation. Really great, great guy. And every week, I feel like I'm learning so much by talking to these 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 writers. And I hope you are as well. Uh, his recommended book was Kevin Brownlow's The Parades Gone By, which I've definitely put on my list. Remember as well that you want to be getting hold of a copy of the whole darn human comedy. It's my best Sam Elliott impersonation, the the comedy of the, the, the films of the Coen brothers, which is Joseph's latest book. Thanks to Elliot Atkins for the music and to Ali Howard for the artwork. And thank you all for listening. And I hope I will, I hope I'll see you again next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.